This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of two different plays, Can Do and Aphrodite, and the playwright James Geyer. And James joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jim. Hello, Steve. Well, this is going to be fun. We're going to, first of all, look at Can Do, as you say, Can Do a Play. Now, first of all, why write plays, Jim? Well, when I started, uh, retired from business and started to write, I, I discovered that I was no good at writing descriptions, which you have to write in novels. So it's easy for me to write the dialogue, and, and then when, uh, when a scene is constructed, the, the people who do the scenery uh, present the milieu, the, the uh, surround, and I don't have to describe it. So I found that, for me, it was uh, easy to write uh, dialogue and let, let the uh, stage people present the, uh, the scene. Well, then a play is a real focus on character development, wouldn't you say? Correct. So scenery stage could be an empty stage. In fact, can-do is... Is it can do that kind of a, a stage? No, this can do has a has more of a has a different look, doesn't it? It's just not we're, at an the empty par- room. we're at the Parthenon in uh, right. Athens, yeah. We're at the Parthenon. So can do. You say this: a coarse, crude Texan buys the Acropolis and makes the Parthenon his home and corporate headquarters. Oh, love it already. He is eventually challenged by Zeus, king of the Greek gods, for his barbarian hubris. It takes a Texan, right? Well, it could happen to uh, even in New York City. (laughs) Or Washington, particularly. Yeah, Washington seems to have that that kind of ego these days. But Texas has its share, and uh, of course it had to be an oil man. Tell us about A.J. Candu Jones, a Texas oil man. Well, he has been successful uh, in, in Texas, and he decides to uh, buy the uh, Acropolis, and his wife uh, loves it because she wants to have a mansion that will uh, show up her uh, fellow uh, friends and enemies in, in Houston. Also, Candu has a, a secret that he knows about the Acropolis that nobody else does. So he, he buys it, but he has this plan uh, that he's going to increase his, his wealth uh, <clears throat> considerably. And that is revealed during the, the course of, uh, of the play. Now we've got some others involved. Of course, when something like this, when you're going to buy the Parthenon, you have to have an attorney, don't you? Yes, he has a lawyer, Marbury <laughs> V. Madison. Marbury v. Madison. That sounds like an interesting name. Seems like maybe I've heard those names before. I would hope so if you had a good education. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so is his lawyer up and up? Is he, uh, you know, the good guy, or is he, you know, kind well, of shady? Kind of, he's, he's kind of a cipher. 
He's kind of a geek. Kind of a geek. Yeah. Okay. How does he get hooked up with a Texas oil man? Well, I figured that if you're going to have some American that buy the Acropolis, it should be from, from Texas, of course, and crude, and it's going to involve, involve oil. So the combination led straight to Texas. Then we have Arthur Jones, which is his son, Arthur Jones Jr., and we have Gloria Jones, his sister. Now, what kind of parts do they play in this in this storyline? Arthur has just gotten a, an MBA from Stanford and thinks that he can run the company better than his father. And he doesn't want uh, to own the Acropolis. Uh, takes a lot of money to fix up his busted ruins. So he plots to overthrow his father and, and take over. And uh, in the second act, he brings a psychiatrist to... to Question his father and, and try to prove that his father's insane and could be dispatched away and Arthur would take over. Gloria, the sister, is a very heavy, uh, she's, a, she's attractive, but she's very heavy. And uh, eventually, uh, the uh, relationship between Gloria and the, the weavy lawyer, Marbury, they they work out uh, their relationship. It's, it's, a, it's a sub uh, sub-story to the main story. And of course, any storyline with Zeus, you have to some have to have some young Greek maiden. Yes, early on, this young Greek woman is in a toga and sandals, obviously from some remote time. And she warns Candu that his arrogance and hubris will annoy the gods to the point where the gods will come down and destroy him if, if he does anything bad to the Acropolis. So does Zeus show up? Does he really show up in this play? Do we see him? In the second act, uh, Kandu in the first act has to deal with a, a Saudi uh, sheik who comes, and uh, he smells oil underneath the Acropolis. This, re- <laughs> this reveals Kandu's secret. Uh, Kandu uh, t- looked at the uh, Acropolis, which is a, a hill, and he thinks it's a salt dome with billions of dollars worth of oil underneath it. And once the secret's out, then uh, the Prime Minister of Japan comes and, and wants to buy the Acropolis because Japan is desperate for oil, and he t- assumes that uh, offering $50 billion would entice Kandu to sell it. But Kandu says no. The Prime Minister of Japan unleashes a samurai warrior who attacks Kandu with a sword, and Kandu fights uh, not with a sword but with a a weapon that he's very familiar with, conquers the uh, samurai at the end of the first act. Marbury says to Kandu, you should write a will, and uh, Kandu says, no, I'm not going to die. And Marbury says, everybody dies. Kandu says Christ didn't, and then Kandu says, uh, I'm divine as far as I'm concerned, and that's the end of the first act. In the second act, then, uh, Zeus does appear, but he's a wino bum because nobody believes in him. And then Kandu gives him the old uh, American spiel, you, you can be anything you want if you believe that it's strong enough. And to be a god, you've got to act like a god. This is the power of positive thinking, which is such a part of the American ethos. So Zeus perks up and, <laughs> and uh, becomes strong. And uh, this leads then to the confrontation between 
Pandu, uh, kind of the master of the universe, as we call it, and Zeus, uh, the king of the Greek gods. So they're headed for a, a confrontation. Well, let's switch gears here. Uh, it's kind of a, it's really a big switch now, and we're going from Texas. Uh, we're going from a Texas oil man, and we're going from the Parthenon. Now we're going to just a plain old stage, kind of like a, a room, right? Just a room on yes. the stage. Yes. And this is Aphrodite, and we've got some interesting characters here, uh, Ben Hastings. What kind of a relationship does he have with Aphrodite? of Milos. Well, the Aphrodite of Milos is, is actually the Venus de Milo, which most people are, are familiar with, is great statue in the Louvre in, in, in Paris. And uh, Ben has been uh, studying these, this statue, and he plans to write a book about it, but he decides that he's got to isolate himself with the statue for at least six months for an intensive uh, scrutiny with the statue. So he's in this room in an indeterminate place uh, with, with the statue. The statue is seven feet tall. It's very, uh, very, very imposing. And he believes that she has secrets that if he spends this intense time with, he, he will learn about it. But there are three women who want to, to distract him from the statue and get him uh, for themselves. And one is his wife, Helen, who has agreed to the six-month sabbatical, but she finds living alone is uh, very painful, and she wants him back. And the second woman is Sylvia. She's a very voluptuous young blonde, and she uh, brings Ben a martini every evening at 5 o'clock, and she apparently works for this institution. And the third woman is Xenia, who is a uh, woman of indeterminate age, and uh, thin and wears, wears black. She's a mystery woman. And the three of them, through the play, think that they're going to get him. And the drama is which one is, is going to, to get him, or none of them. And it, it, at the end, the question is, does, does Ben find what he has been searching for? Now, these women, it may be since Aphrodite is a god, that these women may be just agents of the, the goddess to protect her so that uh, this man will never be able to understand woman. And maybe, it's, it, maybe that's the, the fundamental uh, fact we have to deal with, that men will never be able to understand women because they have ways of distracting us from finding uh, the truth. But he's determined to find this essence of woman. Yes, yes. And of course, Venus de Milo has these, as you put it, replete with contradictions. Who is she, really? Well, of course, she has uh, she has no arms to begin with, and uh, <laughs> yeah. and uh, she's three different styles. Her head and her torso and her gown are three different uh, artistic styles. That somehow this whole uh, ruin of a woman comes together and is a, an artistic masterwork. Uh, she's also a, uh, a goddess. Uh, it, it represents both profane and sacred love. She's a very lustful woman, obviously, 
And on the other hand, uh, she's a nurturing mother. It's kind of like the Virgin, the Virgin Mary. So you have these two quite opposite kinds of uh, love. And then the, one of the crucial questions is that she's a combination of all these fragments. Uh, is, is she one thing or is she a fragment thing? And that's the fundamental question uh, of all philosophy is, is there one truth or many? Uh, the plays, both plays I want to emphasize, are very fast-paced, uh, full of humor and wit. Some uh, it gets very raunchy and ribald at, uh, at places. So although it deals with very uh, serious ideas, it, it's a very snappy dialogue. And you don't have to know anything about the Greeks or Greek philosophy to to enjoy the the plays. So does Ben have some some uh, soliloquy, if you will, uh, before Venus de Milo? These dialogues is he really trying to talk with her? In his uh, discussions with the three women, he talks to them. He's trying to educate them about the statue and at the, at the various uh, various levels. And with his wife, he talks about uh, seeing uh, the statue as kind of like uh, analogous to the Big Bang, because all of our civilization in the West came out of the Mediterranean Sea area, and this great big Big Bang of the classical uh, revolution spread to the, to the whole world. And then he, he talks to Sylvia about uh, this being the... Uh, goddess of love and she wants to know more about the uh, the goddess of love and Xenia who's very critical uh, says this this dumb bimbo uh, how in the world could he be attracted to this dumb bimbo and uh, he says what well, actually the Greeks thought if, if, if you made love to Venus uh, you would die or, or be Ratted it on a wheel, and she said, "Well, you ought to put a sign up saying dealing with this woman is uh, dangerous to your health." <laughs> so it's in, the, it's in the conversations with the women that uh, he reveals to the audience uh, these various layers of meaning uh, uh, in the in the statue. Jim, you have a website that explains more about Candu and Aphrodite. Yes, tell us about that. Well, I want to put up a website to explain it to, to, to people and then uh, make it possible for people to order the books. The address is uh, jamesmdyer.com. Dyer is spelled G-U-I-H-E-R. jamesmdyer.com. And, of course, people can order the book from any of the online retail bookstores and probably can walk into a bookstore and order it right there as well. Well, you can order it from the publisher, and uh, it, you can order it from Amazon and, uh, and Barnes and & Noble. I want to point out that uh, these books make very exciting and illuminating reading, but if they're performed, of course, you get a much more vivid view of the characters and all of the ideas in the plays. And I, I want to encourage uh, the people to... Uh, have the, the plays performed. In my view, they're particularly suited for high school and college uh, students and teachers. These are excellent ways to introduce people to these uh, classical Greek ideas. And uh, today, when we're awash in uh, the, the trivia and uh, 
tweeter? What do you call them? Tweeters? Tweets, yeah. <laughs> and 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 worshiping celebrities. We need to go back to something more fundamental and timeless ideas, it seems. So I, I see these plays as very valuable to lift people kind of out of their daily uh, trivial uh, pursuits <laughs> and then uh, deal with, with these timeless ideas in a way that that are very uh, accessible and, and engaging with very exciting uh, uh, characters, oh, Jim. Modern, modern characters. Jim, we want to thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. Well, I certainly appreciate the chance to discuss these uh, plays. That was playwright James Geyer and his two plays, Can Do and Aphrodite. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central, on Toginat with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus, NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Bomb with Jill Hickey, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com. Innovation and insight, problems and solutions, capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of Changing the World One Invention at a Time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on toginet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. Rick will be asking the right questions helping you identify the real problems and showing you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence and, more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guest teaches how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs. And together, let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time with author and inventor Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Twilight's Ashes, As Heaven Fades, book one. And the author is Aller Ivis, and Aller joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Aller. Hi, Steve. How are you? Well, this is a first book in a trilogy. It's an epic. I want to read what you have written, your introduction for everyone to kind of set the stage for our discussion. You say, Twilight's Ashes is a book about what could happen in the future if we learn to sustain life on Earth without space travel for half a million years. And it's just a rousing good adventure tale set in a world of dangerous post-human creatures. 
Dangerous post-human creatures. That kind of uh, sets the stage. And let me read this. You say, Foremost, I really just want people to enjoy the rousing tale, to come away with a sense of having been on a good ride. If they're not enjoying it, then any takeaway message would not convey. The primary serious message of the book is what we humans are barely at the beginning of what must be a long sojourn into harmony and balance if we are able to survive long enough to be considered as a successful species on our planet. Well, we're going That's into cool. the future 600,000 years, Aller. Why did you write this book? What in the world motivated you to take us that far into the future? Well, I guess I wanted to sort of vicariously experience the future that I thought was going to come, and um, in maybe a more serious sense to sort of... Um, provide a warning for some of the things that I see that I don't like that I see in the future. Um, also, I just, uh, I've always been a, a person interested in telling stories um, on paper. And I started writing when I was barely able to write, you know, second, third grade, and I've just been writing stories ever since. And you have a scientific professional background, so you, you like to kind of... Uh assess things from a different point of view than most? Yeah, I um, I tried to um, set this distant future book in a, a way, sort of build the world of this distant future book with, um, you know, like reality in mind, with what we know about the way um, people survive, the way um, the climate might change, um, Human behavior, human natural behavior, um, everything that I could uh, do to try to extrapolate the way a futurist, a professional futurist, might do. Although I'm certainly an, only an amateur at that, I am a research um, atmospheric scientist, and so um, I've tried to make it a realistic, um, believable world that I built in this distant future. One of the premises of the book is that. Humanity is on the verge of extinction, and you have a special emphasis, as you say, on the evolutions of humans and post-humans that sprang from them, the whys and the hows. Now, we're going to get into this. Uh, there's just a few humans left. Why are there only just a few left? Well, um, they've been isolated and um, shoved out of uh large areas of the planet by these post-human species. Um, one of them in particular um, carries a serious deadly disease, which is actually its advantage. One of the races, one of the other species is an advanced race that's more advanced than humans called the Irula. The others are sort of devolved creatures, but they have um, enough cleverness and um, and physical strength or whatever, they have adaptive mechanisms because they evolved from humans that they actually uh, supplanted humans in large parts of the world. But then sort of the last straw is this disease that the Bula carry, and they have, um, it, it's seriously contagious for humans. It's sort of the way um, you can imagine how the, uh, when the, when the Spanish conquistadors moved into the um, Inca culture, how they got wiped out so seriously. So that's what's happened to the to the uh, humans in this distant future. We're talking about a time when 
it's an ice age, right? Yes, absolutely. And that has a, a dominant uh, effect on everything that happens in, in the story. Yeah, um, it starts out set deep in the middle of the uh, new um, ice sheet where there's a village where this the young protagonist is growing up pretty much totally isolated from the rest of the world. So he's got to get out of there, basically. And, of course, your hero, uh, his name is Jeb. What's his full name? Jebden Gale. Okay. He's called it. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Now, does he realize his calling in life? Um, no. Um, he, he maybe has inklings of um, being someone special. In fact, I mean, his, his, aunts, his uh, elders, his relatives... Um, all know that he has a certain amount of gift of um, ability to connect with the uh, spirits, the ancestors of his world. Um, he can do uh, readings and things like that. He can kind of tell people um, what seems to be coming in the future. So, they, so he knows that he's special, but he actually hates that because um, he's always being bugged and um when he was born, the day he was born, these, one of the evolutions that happens to human beings is that they can speak from birth. Um, right? And so the moment he was born, he spoke the name of an uh, unknown spirit, which seemed to just permeate the room with uh, a glow and so on. And ever since then, his, aunt, his relatives and the elders of the village were trying to get him to reconnect with this spirit and, and show them what what the spirit is trying to tell um, everyone, but um, they're pressuring him so much that he rebels, he resists it, so he basically hates his gift, and um, so he may know he's special, but he doesn't really want to um, um, take it any anywhere from there. So he's got to be uh, essentially convinced that it's important enough, and so on. There is a prophecy about the seventh shepherd, and some believe he is. Right. Um, in, especially in the distant village that his, his distant ancestors came from, that's where the prophecy was um, discovered or uh, came into, was revealed to the uh, mysterious leaders there. They, it's a fairly recent uh, discovery of this prophecy, and... Um, so once these leaders discover um, this prophecy, they uh, want to send a mission out to find Jebden. They basically realize that he's there. They actually have some information where he is because there's one significant character in the book who has visited this, this village where he grew up uh, 18 years ago. And um, so they know about him in slight detail and... Um, they send out a mission to try to, to get him. But this um, fellow whose name is Rebel Stoke, who is a, a traveling emissary, he got he uh, tried to get there first because he doesn't want them to get Jebden. He wants, he wants basically to get Jebden and his family um, to take them to his hometown. And um, the reason is because in his previous visit. His um, Jebden's mother, it was before Jeb was born, his, his mother uh, 
was a troubled young woman, and rebel folk arrived in this village and basically convinced her to live, and she um, she rejected him in the end. He fell in love with her. She rejected him. He left uh, a broken, rejected man, and he's always wanted to get to have another chance with her, so to speak. So here we are 17 years later, and uh, he shows up at the village again and uh, essentially tries to get um, the uh, Jebden's mother to now come with him again. There's this godless post-human horde sweeping the world. I'm trying to see this where Jeb, I guess, is this prophetic hero to save the human race against them? Yeah, that's what the prophecy says, that um, he or uh, someone probably, I mean, he's the best candidate, someone is going to um, find a way to stay the uh, hordes and to preserve humanity and um, assure a future for humanity um, on the planet. So they're hoping it is Jebden. Um, but the future is not preordained in this in this world as I've built it. So it has to Jeb has to be um, not only convinced that he can do it, but he has to grow and learn um, to be a leader, learn to be um, in comfortable touch with the spirit world. That um, the chief spirit named Dow is going to guide him send him through multiple um, trials and lessons through the book in order to get him to the point where he can be this leader. So we have that training experience for Jeb throughout the book, and then, of course, I'm sure there are confrontations with this well, godless post-human yeah. horde. Absolutely. They uh, run into several of them in the first book, and... Um, is actually one of the um, rule of the advanced race who is a derelict or uh, a reject from the culture, and he actually becomes one of Jeb's uh, mentors and friends and uh, helps him survive. So, yeah, he, we encounter these um, post-human species through the book, and they create a lot of the tension in the book. Alder, there's this spiritual side to the book that is important to you. Explain that. Well, it's, uh, it's actually changed my life as I've written the book. Um, I started out and had been since I was a child and sort of started to think for myself. I rejected sort of traditional religion and became an agnostic, basically, starting out as sort of a vehement atheist, but becoming an agnostic and no interest in spirituality. Then I started writing this book and realized that in this uh, very simple culture that these people live in, they would have a spirituality. And in order to do it right, I have to dig into it. And I was reluctant. I really didn't care about it. But as I went into it more and more, it became more and more real to me. And the whole, you know, just thinking about the spiritual side of life and as a result, I uh, have really taken it seriously. I've joined the Unitarian Universalist Church, where they are a group of uh, open-minded seekers, and they've had my spiritual quest, and bottom line is, as a result of that, I really would like to and will be donating half the proceeds, um, profits from the book, to 
my local Unitarian Universalist Church and the uh, National uh, Association of Congregations. Well, it seems like Jeb, the hero, struggles with his uh, humanness and his spiritual side, and that's really, uh, you know, dealing with our weaknesses, uh, realizing the impact that one individual can make. It seems that you're showing that struggle through this incredible epic of every human struggle between their potential and their weaknesses and learning how to uh, reach out in that spiritual way to uh, do the impossible even. Yeah, that's, uh, I guess, you know, in some ways uh, I have to say I, you know, I wanted to live vicarious through, vicariously through Jeb. And um, so uh, it's, it is everyone's journey and um, including mine. And uh, as I said, it really helped me grow and learn and understand the whole realm of, of life that um, I had just ignored, rejected, and neglected. The title of the book, Twilight's Ashes as Heaven Fades, book one of a trilogy. The author is Aller Ivis. Aller, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available through uh, the iUniverse website and through um, Amazon um, and, uh, as they say, uh, better Internet retailers everywhere. And do you have your own website? Yes, I do. It's um, allerivis.com. That's allerivis, A-U-L-E-R-I-V-I-S dot com. Correct. Well, we really enjoyed having you on iUniverse Radio, Aller. Thank you so much. Well, Steve, I appreciate I enjoyed it, and I appreciate your uh, hosting. That was Aller Ivis. He is the author of his book, Twilight's Ashes. As Heaven Fade, book one, book one of a trilogy. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriended is on Togginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriended principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com and then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And 
And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Time Revisited, a memoir, and the author is Dorothy Jane Staples, and Dorothy joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dorothy. Hi, how are you, Steve? First of all, happy birthday. Your birthday was just this past weekend. Yes, it was, and thank you very much. And you are at the great age of 92 and not stopping for anything. Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) That's the real, I guess that's the real story behind Dorothy Jane Staples. She's not stopping for anything. I I think that's pretty much what I've written in my little notes here, that you keep on going, you keep on being optimistic, and you never stop till you make what your goal is. There you go. That's best advice for Anyone at any age, let me read what you've written about your book. You say, my book is the chronicle of my life from a small-town girl to a successful businesswoman in a large metropolitan setting with all the strange and unusual events along the way. Well, you started out in a, I guess, a small, small town of with... Nine in your family, you have eight brothers and sisters, and why did you move to, where where was it, Asheville? Well, we lived on a farm, and my mother told my father that he was working, my father was a very hard worker, and she said, you're killing your children with overwork, we have to leave this farm and move somewhere else, and they moved to Asheville, which was a one street in the town with a few little side streets, and, uh, and bought a service station in this small town where there were no, uh, where there weren't, people didn't own cars then. And there, were, there was a, a usual, once in a while there was a car pass through, and that was their, what the customers were. But they were the mechanics in town and had the service station and a little candy store, which I managed when I was 12 years old. So Asheville, Pennsylvania, is where is that near? Near Altoona, Pennsylvania. Altoona, right. Know where Altoona is? Do you know? I used to live in Erie, Pennsylvania, so I know Pennsylvania oh. fairly well. Well, Altoona is the railroad station, the railroad town. Okay. That's the horseshoe curve. Well, when you arrived there, you became really good friends with Betty Abel. And I just talked to her yesterday. <laughs> All these years. And she's 92 as well. 92. So you start out, your memories go all the way back to Asheville, Pennsylvania. How old were you when your father passed away? Uh, seven years old. My goodness. That must have been a very, very hard thing for the whole family, and especially for a young girl like you. Oh, it was, but, you know, we didn't quite understand it. We didn't, we didn't really understand the, the, 
that it was over, that it was done. At seven years old at that time, uninformed like as we were, uh, we thought my dad was taking a nap. Right, and somehow he would be back, huh? Right, right. Now, you, that you say that most of your mother's business attempts failed. What did she try to do? Well, as I said, there were no cars in the town to service. They bought a service station, and there was not enough uh, passing. Cars came in the middle of the night and, uh, and passing through from going uh, from one town to another. But we had a very small population, and so it was not a... My mother actually got under cars and inspected them. So how did she take care of this big family? Well, by hook or by crook, she bought, all through the book, you see where she bought one business after another. And the first thing we knew, we'd, one day I woke up and found out that we were moving, and I no one had ever told me. And we were moving to Altoona, where my, and my mother had a very good friend who was a judge, and he helped her to get compensation which we did get until we were all 18 years old. And she was a lectioneer for him, standing up, going out, punch, standing on um, on baskets or whatever they could find to toot about the candidate that they want to be elected. Very involved in politics. Very involved. And uh, she went to fairs and took her homemade donuts and and uh, chicken uh, uh, pies. She had, was famous for her chicken pies and homemade noodles. And um, there's a bit about my mother in the book that people will enjoy. So I guess you learned a lot from your mom. Oh, yes, I did. My mom would, when I was selected as the as a person in a play, my mom sat with the books every day and went over the lines with me. She was a beautiful speaker. So you enjoyed that? You enjoyed being in the theater? Oh, I love a theater. I love it. I love to be, I love to act. I, I actually nearly had a baby on stage. <laughs> my oh. sixth job. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yes, you are the mother of seven children and... And you have over 20 grandchildren, and probably uh, great-grandchildren as well. Well, and they're included in that in that, that, that 26 includes great and grandchildren. Yep, steps, all kinds. Well, how did you, uh, what just prompted you to write this book? Well, the way it started out was um, Bobby kept saying to me, Bobby's the youngest, kept saying to me, Mom, why don't you write a book? Why don't you tell the story, the story of our, how things started and your past and your mother's past and your father's past and tell, let us know so our children will know and their children will know. And don't, you're, not, you're keeping it a secret. And he said this so long ago. He's now 50 years old. And, um, and I, I said, Bob, I don't have time. I'm, I was in the business raising seven children, running a business, doing theater work. <laughs> I didn't have time to do it. And so he bought me a blank book, 
And one day, when I retired at 85, I started to write down what he wanted me to do. And that's how it started. I want to make sure everyone heard that. You retired when you were 85. Right. <laughs> A lot of people think you're supposed to do that at 65, but uh, 85 was, your, was yours, and you're not retired now. No, and I continued, even when I retired, to handle all the accounts receivable and make the collections and the phone calls for accounts receivable. Well, you, you got into the display uh-huh. business, uh, store installations for displaying uh, garments, uh, clothing? Uh-huh. uh-huh. And how, how, did that, how did all that happen, Dorothy? Well, my husband was a, a display manager of Sears Roebuck, and um, they, they went into a completely different type of merchandising, more modern than they had before, and my husband decided to leave Sears and open his own business. And because he had worked for a company that had a disc- fixture company before he went to work at Sears, and um, that's where Nathan's was born. When we in 1952, I believe we I think it was anyway. We bought. Uh, Nathan's from the owner who had passed, from the widow of the owner who had passed away and added it to the little business that we had started before that. And so that's how we got into it, but he, that was his profession. Well, before you got into that very successful business, uh, you were also a chicken farmer. Well, I was a chicken farmer while we started the business. Oh, my goodness. A couple <laughs> businesses. So one, we had bought this. We had a beautiful little house that's on the cover of the book. And uh, my, my husband came home one night after we bought this little farm, three-acre farm, and came home with a whole box of boxes full of little one-day-old chickens. And I looked, he put them in my laundry, which was next to the kitchen. And I looked at him and I said, Bill, what are you going to do with these things? <laughs> he says, oh, we're going to, we have, we're going to raise them. We have eaters and we have um, chicken houses and, and roosts and everything we need. I says, yes, dear, but we don't have any electric in them. <laughs> so they can't, you can't turn on the heat. And little chickens die when they're a day old if they're in a cold place. And they're not going to stay in my laundry. And that was, I said, you better call your dad, who was wonderful to us, and find out how fast you can electrify those chicken houses or 200 little baby chicks and their purchaser are going to be looking for a new home. And that's how I started. <laughs> so I and guess, he did it. and he did it. I was going to say, I bet Monday, he did it. On Monday, we had uh, we had electric and we had heat in the chicken house. And there are a lot of funny stories in the book about the chickens. Well, you have a very simple view of life, even though this simple phrase, this simple statement, is very challenging. We've all heard it, but it sums up. Sounds like your life, if you first don't succeed, try, try again, and persevere always. 
Well, that's that's my code, and that's what I've taught. I have seven wonderful, wonderful children. I lost one, so I have six now. But uh, have um, I, I have wonderful, chick, uh, wonderful children. So thank my lost my husband. Unfortunately, he passed away about 20 years ago. So I've been a widow all these years. And along the way, you've also been buying and selling real estate. Right. I I think I bought close to 40 and bought and sold close to 40 properties that I didn't live in. And I bought about six other ones that I've lived in. So that was very uh, good for you to do that. Very good because I still have six condos in Brigantine. And you're also very involved in teaching students, I guess, about speech, right? About how to speak properly and how to speak speak effectively. And how to debate and, um, and how to have poise. And they actually, colleges are very pleased when they see that on an application uh, because not enough schools do it. And it's always a... Uh, it's not on the curriculum generally, so it's not uh, all schools don't have it. But that's what I do, and I teach that uh, to sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. Well, tell us some favorite story about the theater. That seems like a love of yours. What was something that you're just so proud of? Something I'm proud of that I did in the theater. I spent most all my life either on the stage or properties or uh, prompting or something to do with theater. I was the president for two years, the vice president for two years. And um, I, my, the favorite story is when I got a call from a casting director and he said, I, and I was new to Wincote, Pennsylvania, so it was um, a shock to get this call. And he said, I understand you've just joined our group. And I said, yes, I've been in theater all my life. And he said, well, I would like to know if you would be interested in playing the part of a pregnant woman for the March play. So I believe it was the March play. And I said, oh, I can't be in it because I'm pregnant. I'd have to wait to be in a play after my baby's born. Oh, he said, well, that's what I want. I want a (laughs) pregnant woman in the play. I want you to be very pregnant. And I said, well, I'm very pregnant. He said, and then I said, what would happen if I fell, uh, what would happen if I um, had the baby on the stage? He says, "Well, what would happen if the uh, if the actress, the star, uh, fell down the cellar steps? The play would not go on." <laughs> and that was the answer. So he said, "Ask your gynecologist," and I did. And um, when I and he said, "Oh," and I said, "You think I could do it?" He said, "Sure, by all means, do it." So uh, I was in the play and. That the there's always a curtain call at the end in these community theaters, and I had the longest lines of any of the 
stars that were in the play because they wanted to know if it was real or not. <laughs> and turned out that I had the baby the next day. Wow. Well, what a memory, and congratulations. Also, congratulations. In May of 2004, you were included in the 50 Best Women in Business in the Eastern Pennsylvania Business Journal. So you've been recognized throughout your life and been very successful in a, in a variety of ventures. So thank you. Thank you so much, Dorothy, for being with us. Please tell us how to get your book. I have a typed-up sheet of paper, which I'm sending to my friends and which went out to hundreds of my associates in the business world have already. And it says, I am to be interviewed about my book by Steve Jorgensen on an Internet radio station. The interview will be aired on Saturday, October 9, 2010, from 4 o'clock to 5 p.m., you will be able to listen to at www.toganet.com. There is also an encore airing the following Thursday from 12 to 1 a.m. You can also listen to Achieve podcast at the toganet.com website above. Also, if anyone is interested in purchasing the book, you can do it one of two ways through www.amazon.com or www.barnesandnoble.com and I have it signed Jane Staples and it went out to several hundred people. Well, thank you, Dorothy. Thank you so much for being on iUniverse Radio. Very interesting. Really enjoyed it. Well, I enjoyed it very much too, Steve, and I look forward to listening in to some of your other programs. That was Dorothy Jane Staples. She is the author of her book, her, her autobiography, Time Revisited, a memoir. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.